you would, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians chapter three, this evening we're gonna be looking at verses one through 12, or one through 13, rather. Ephesians three, one through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you which is your glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this evening thankful, Lord, that we have been able to worship you by the Spirit through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so now we come thankful that you have spoken through the reading of your word and now we pray that you would speak through its preaching. You tell us, O Lord, that your word is truth and Christ even prays that you would sanctify us uh, by your truth. And so we pray, Father, that this evening would not just be an exercise in vain hearing, but Lord, that you would be at work, that you would be at work in our hearts. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. One of the difficulties of our Bible reading is when we come to passages where perhaps we don't appreciate the point that the human author is making or that the the original audience is making as much as they did. Right, there's those passages in scripture where they're making a point and they're excited about it and, and we know that we should be excited about it too but we just, we just really struggle to, to kind of grasp it and to get kind of pumped up by it. Right, we, we, there, there's there's a, a sort of gap, right? In circumstances, a gap in, uh, a gap in content, really a gap in understanding. And we see this in other places in our lives as well, right? We see this, we see that there's a relationship really between how much you value certain things, for example, and what kind of time era you were born in. Like if we were to take a survey right now, we could say probably with a great level of comfort, uh, of, of certainty, 
that our golden oldies don't appreciate video games as much as many of our youth group do. Right, you, you notice the, the kind of generational gap here. Our appreciation lies in different areas. Or, or perhaps, you know, take this one. You know, our, our golden oldies probably don't appreciate cell phones as much as our young professionals do. Or maybe, maybe you're a, a parent of, of three young little boys that love to run around and have fun and make noise and be wild. Right, they don't appreciate quiet time in the same way that I do. Right, there's, there's a huge generational gap. There's a, there's a huge generational gap in between those two things that leads to a difference in how much we appreciate a certain thing. I mean, to us, there's a fairly high likelihood that chapter two, verse 11 through chapter three, verse 13, that we kind of probably check out of the book of Ephesians. Right, to us, this is probably one of the more boring kind of passages in the book. But the reality is, is that to the Ephesians, specifically to the Gentile Ephesians, this would have been one of the most important chapters in the whole entire book. I mean, for us, let's be honest, like when you come to this passage in your Bible reading, yeah, it probably doesn't hit you the same way that other passages in the book. You, right? you probably don't take these passages and commit them to memory like you do other ones. I mean, take like, take chapter one, verses three through 14, right? Where we have this glorious explanation of all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. Or maybe chapter two, verses one through 10, where we learn just how dead we are and just what God has done to raise us from the dead. Or maybe chapter five and verses, uh, verses 22 to 33 where Paul talks about husbands and wives and how marriage is a model of the gospel and husbands are supposed to love their wives as Jesus loves the church. Or maybe chapter six, verses 10 through 20 where we learn of spiritual warfare and we learn to put on the armor of God, right? These are the passages when we think of Ephesians, those are the passages we think of, right? Those are the ones that we commit to memory, but for the Ephesians, right, this passage, you know, from, from chapter two, verse 11, all the way through 313, this passage would have been of utmost importance. And one of the reasons is because of that generational gap, right? I mean, one of the reasons why we struggle with this passage in particular is because for us, this is not really new news. I mean, the fact that the Gentiles have been invited into the covenant of grace is something that, that kind of we've been aware of since our, you know, from the beginning of our Christian lives, but that the church has been aware of for 2,000 years. This is, to us, really not new news. But for them, there has just been a major change in landscape. God has just redefined what the church is, what it's supposed to look like, how it's supposed to be. There's been a major change in who God covenants himself with, who God yokes himself to in covenant, right? It's no longer just the Jews, but it's now these Gentiles have been included. There's been a major change in the landscape of really Christianity, of what it means to love the Lord and what it means for God to love his people, so for them, this passage would have meant the world. And my goal this evening is, is really to remind us that this passage still means the world, right? That this passage still 
still is very important for us as, as Christians and as a church. Well, I mean, really, why is it such a big deal? I think it's still important, it's still a big deal because number one, it tells us about what God has done and number two, it tells us what we should do. But at first, let's, let's, let's think about, let's ponder for a minute, let's talk about what God has done. I mean, really, and, and that's, that kind of idea is encapsulated in this term mystery. All right, this word mystery is used four times in the course of these 13 verses, really kind of what the whole passage kind of hin- uh, hinges around. Um, and this mystery, right, the, the, the nature of the word itself is really defined for us in verse five, right? That which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations. In other words, there's this thing that has been revealed that other people before didn't know about. In other words, there's been this secret in the counsel of God that we have not, that the church has not been made aware of. Right? And, and so this secret uh, belongs to God and he has just made it known. That's really the, the, the kind of making it known part Right, it describes verses one through six. Verse two, right? But Paul talks about how God, uh, that the stewardship of God's grace, see, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, right? God has given him this thing for the Gentiles. Verse three, that how it was made known to me by revelation. Verse five, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. You see, there's this thing, there's this, this information that God knew that has just been made known to the apostles and the prophets, Paul being one of them. And it's really earth shattering. It's really, it, it encapsulates a lot of shock value. And verse six defines what it is that has been made known. I mean, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. The Gentiles that they are fellow heirs, that they are recipients of an inheritance with the Jews. Now, it's, it's shocking in and of itself that we would receive anything from God, right? That there would be any inheritance for us to receive whatsoever, but it's even more shocking that these people who have been outside of the covenant for so long, these vile, worthless Gentiles out here, that they would become recipients of the inheritance of God, that they would be fellow heirs with the Jews, And not only that, but they would be members of the same body. In other words, they're not God's kind of plan B church or God's kind of side church that he he really loves the Jews, but he's got the the Gentiles. No, it's not that, right? It's that the Gentiles are the same. They are are members of the body of Christ. There is one body of Christ and Jew and Gentile are both part of that one body in Christ. But even more so, that they are partakers of the promise. Literally, that they are fellow sharers in the promises of God. In other words, all of the promises of the entire Bible are yes and amen in Christ. 
but in Christ, they also belong to the Gentiles. If you were an Ephesian reader of this epistle, you would have just had your mind blown. Right? You, would have, you would have just had your mind blown that, that, that you are no longer an outsider, but that God has invited you into his covenant of grace. And not, I mean, to translate it kind of into to present day, not just Gentiles, but sinners in general. Right, it's, it's an amazing thing to like, think about how God is defined in this passage. You know, you're talking about God who is, uh, who is eternal, God who has this plan for eternity, the God who gives grace, not receives grace, but the one who gives grace, God who is heavenly. All of these kind of descriptors rolling around in this passage, not to count the ones who are already you know, mentioned in chapters one and two, but you have God covenanting himself with sinners. You, know, you see these, the, the great difference between these two parties, yet... In Christ, they have been brought together. Right? In Christ, they are now one. And so the, the, the wow factor of this passage began to come to life, not, not only when we just kind of relegate it to the Gentiles 2,000 years ago, but when we think about it in our own terms, right, as applying to, to ourselves, as no, no, God has not just kind of invited Gentiles from 2,000 years ago into his covenant, but he's invited me into his covenant, me as a Gentile, but me just period, me into covenant with him. And so why would this passage have been so mesmerizing, so jaw-dropping, so shocking, so important for the Ephesian readers? Well, it's because of the almost unfathomable truth that, that, that God would invite sinners, Gentile sinners, vile sinners, sinners like you and I, into a relationship with himself. And there's a shock value to that, or at least there, there, there ought to be, right? There's something about that that should almost be unbelievable, right? It's, it's in that category of thing that there's such good news that it's almost unbelievable news. I mean, some of you have kind of heard that, that category of news before when the doctors told you, you know, the, the cancer's gone or, you know, the, the, the doctors told you, you know, the baby's healthy, everything's fine, it's wonderful, it's great, it's, it's doing just what it should be doing or, you know, the, the fact that you, you got the job. Th- those kinds of headline news that have been directed to you where you're like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I, it's almost too good to be true. It's, it's almost kind of unbelievable, That's what, that's what we have in the mystery of God. And what, what, one of the kind of evidences of the shock value of, of these truths is that, fa- that, that, that Paul even says them in the first place. You see, Paul starts in verse one He's, you know, he's speaking, he's got his secretary over here writing his letter for him and he, and he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then the thought clicks in his head, you know, this gospel is so unbelievable that maybe the fact that, that I'm an apostle and that I'm also in jail, that may give them some trouble. And so I'm going to explain that their salvation is not rooted in me as an apostle, but their salvation is rooted in the God of eternity. It's rooted in verse 11 that it was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, 
the shock value of the gospel may have been sort of driving some doubt in the Ephesian church where they, you got these Gentiles there and they've learned, Paul's told them before, hey, you're included in the covenant, but now they're, they're, their preacher, their apostles now in jail and so they think that it may be in jeopardy, right? That this thing that sounded too good to be true, well, maybe it is too good to be true. But the, the, the part that I wanna kind of harp in on is that the God of grace has invited sinners into covenant with him through Christ and that that ought to shock us in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Right, I'm, I'm kind of going for the emotion of verses one, verses one through six. What the, the, the Gentile Ephesians, how they would have read one through six and encouraging us to kind of take up that same emotion. Right, the fact that, that the God of grace has invited sinners into covenant with him. The fact that that should shock it. But these truths, right, we, we, you know, we as Christians, some of us have been Christians in here for, for decades, for half a century, some of us probably. It sounds like a long time. And the danger is, is that over time, these simple truths that we've known for so long that at one point in time gave us great excitement and joy and that inflamed our heart that these things can become dull. Right, I remember I was talking with someone just this week, you know, when I became a reformed Christian, I grew up in a dispensational church. I had no idea about the doctrines of grace. You know, I thought that man was at least partly responsible for salvation. And when I became reformed, when the Lord kind of showed me these things in the scriptures, you know, my mind was being blown on a daily basis. And I was growing and I was excited and I was learning new things all the time. And then kind of over time, like you should at least, like you learn these things and so kind of the frequency with which your mind is blown is it gets to be more and more or, or less and less. We don't want that to happen with the gospel. Right, when we consider the fact that the God of glory has invited sinners into covenant with him, we want that to shock us in some way, shape, form, or fashion. We don't wanna lose the shock value of the gospel. 12 years ago, I mean, one of my major kind of hobbies was iPhones or Apple, right? My, one, of my, one, of my, one of the things that I loved most was to just kind of search Google for Apple news and, you know, oh, they're gonna come out with this phone, it's gonna have this and that and the other. And the, the feeling right, that I got when I went to open up that phone, when I got it, you know, one of the first dozen in the little town of Vidalia, Georgia, or the only dozen to get them on the, the first day that it opened, or the first day that it came out, you know, I was, I was just, I was shocked by this device that I had in my hand. Oh, it can do so many things. Last year, about this time, Casey and I got new phones. And I opened up the phone, and I looked at it. Nice phone. <laughs> the shock value is just not there anymore. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's crazy how things change over time. But, but that's what we don't want to happen with the gospel, Right, we don't want the shock value of the gospel to fade away in our Christian lives because the shock value of the gospel is what drives what we do with it. It's what drives our evangelism. It's, it, it's what drives fervency in the Christian life. 
And now maybe perhaps some of us, you know, we're, we're in that position that I'm talking about. We're like, you know, I read, I read Ephesians and I read Ephesians 1 or 3, 6 and I hear about the gospel and I hear about how God has invited these vile sinners into his presence and to be heirs of his inheritance and to be members of his body and to be partakers of the promises of Christ Jesus. And I'm just like, yeah, that's kind of, that's, that's all right. You know, one of the ways that we correct that is by meditating on, on these things, meditating on these scriptures and, and contemplating how the, the, the holy God of all creation could ever want to be in covenant relationship with me, a vile sinner. Like th- th- those two things, with Christ being the one who unites and Christ being the one who reconciles, that's how we regain shock value. And so yes, For verses one through six, there should be a sense in which we're shocked that God has invited us into covenant with him. I mean, undoubtedly, the Ephesians, they would have been, right? It would have have broken their brains that they now stand on level ground with the Jews, with God's covenant people of thousands of years. But God has declared it, right? Gentiles, are part of my church. Gentiles are part of my people. But the question then becomes, okay, theologically we know that's true, but, but how do they actually get in? I mean, we know from chapter two, verses 13 through 16, that, that yes, we, we know what Christ has done to bring them in, Right, verse 13 of chapter two, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by, de- by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. We know what Christ has done to bring the Gentiles in to the church. But speaking very practically, like how's he gonna do it? Like how are they actually going to come in? Well, that's what verses seven or eight are about. In verse seven of this gospel, I, Paul, was made a minister, a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. All right, so God has set Paul apart for something. Verse eight, what is that something? To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And so we ask the question practically, how are the Gentiles actually gonna be brought in? We know that God has declared that they are in. We know that Christ has done the work to bring them in, but how? How is he going to bring them in? How are they actually gonna be a part of the church of God? Well, the answer is quite clear, isn't it? By the preaching of the unsearchable, the unfathomable, the incomprehensible, the bottomless riches Christ. 
What do you mean by the unsearchable riches of Christ? Well, I mean what Paul says about Christ and throughout all of his epistles and how wonderful Christ is, how magnificent he is, the, 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 the glory and the beauty not only of his work but of his person. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By the unsearchable riches of Christ, I mean that the sinless lamb of God came and lived and died that we wouldn't have to. Right? We mean that the Lord of all creation who was resurrected from the dead, would literally, physically raise us from the dead, but also even now, spiritually raise us from the deadness of our sin. Right, I mean, the, the, the high priest of heaven, that, that he's ours, right, that we have an intercessor, someone pleading on our behalf in the heavenly throne room, the one in whom we have boldness and access with confidence, according to verse 12. That's what Paul is preaching. But why is he preaching it? He's preaching it, number one, because that's what God's told him to preach, but number two, because that's what saves. Preaching the gospel, preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ and that how Christ is the consummation of God's plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, that is what brings people unto himself. That's what brings people into the covenant of God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse 16, that he's not ashamed of the gospel Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God's for salvation, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The Christ of glory is what was held out for us to believe. You remember when you became a Christian, the beauty and the magnificence of Christ was held out that you might come to him. The Christ of glory is what we hold out for our neighbors, that they might come to him. I mean, the church has tried all sorts of different mechanisms to bring people in, you know, before. We've heard of churches giving away cars. You've heard of churches scaring people into heaven, right? You know, if you don't come to Jesus, you know, you're gonna burn in hell for eternity. Both of those things are true. But scare tactics don't usually have very longevity Right, there's all sorts of great things that we could tell people. You know, the church is a wonderful community. The people would love you there. You'll have fun there. You'll get to be a part of a mission there. Right, you know, come be a part of the church. You know, the church, God cares about social justice. All of these things are truths that are used in order to bring people in. 
But what does Christ or what does Paul do that the Gentiles may come in? He preaches to them the unsearchable riches of Christ. We give them Christ because Christ is the only thing worth giving them. And this translates not only uh, from Paul as an apostle to me as a pastor, but also to all of us as believers. Right? We have God ordinarily, uh, day after day, puts people in our lives and puts people, uh, gives us opportunities to evangelize. Right? This is what Paul did with his life. Right? Day in, day out, he used his calling, he used his love for Christ Jesus to tell people about Christ Jesus, which is why he's in jail in this letter. Paul gave his life to this work, preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. And some of us, you know, evangelism is kind of a hard topic to preach on sometimes because, you know, I'm not the perfect evangelist either. Uh, I think probably all of us would, would agree that we have room to grow in that area. And, you know, some of the common excuses uh, that, that I give myself and that you probably give for yourself is, you know, you know I'm, I'm not worthy to share the unsearchable riches of Christ, right? Pastor, if you just knew my past and knew how bad I was and knew how bad I was to those people that you're telling me to go, to, to go evangelize, right, you, you wouldn't want me doing that except for the fact that Paul considered himself the very least of all the saints in verse eight. Paul considered himself the very least of all the saints and yet Christ glorified him or Christ was glorified through his ministry, through the least of us. You know, many of us would say, you know, I'm, I'm providentially hindered from evangelism. You know, I, I can't get out, I can't move, I can't just go out there and, and preach the gospel on the street, not that that's what I'm asking you to do, but I mean, Paul's in jail. How do you get much more hindered than that? And then others of us, you know, say, you know, I'm afraid. You're honest. Amen. I am too. But God supplies the grace. Verse eight, God supplied the grace that enabled Paul to pursue this ministry. And so what is, what is God calling us to do? So, so verses one through six, what has God done? Well, he's declared that the Gentiles are part of his people. Well, what do, what do we do about that? Well, we go and we preach Christ. But why? Right? We, we know that, that God invites sinners into covenant with him. That's the thing that we know. What do we do? Well, we go and we preach the unsearchable riches of Christ because that's what God uses to bring people in. But why do we do it? What's, what's the why behind it? Well, because by so doing, we bring glory to our Father in heaven. You know, kind of overall, there's a cyclical flow to this passage. Kind of like the, the, the water cycle, right? And I, it's been a long time since I've looked at this. Right, you have water in the sky. It rains, it comes down, and then it does all sorts of things. You know, it feeds wildlife. It, it makes plants to grow. It does all the things. It flows back out into the rivers and into the oceans, and then it evaporates back up into the sky, and it just keeps going around and around and around and around and around. This passage is, is kind of like that. Right, you have God who knows about this mystery, who's had this secret for eternity. But he reveals this secret to Paul. 
And then Paul goes and preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles come into the church. And then by the Gentiles coming into the church, God is therefore glorified. Right? You see, you have this full circle of, of revelation to preaching, to church building, to glory. Right? Why do we go and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ? Because, well, it's, it's very simple. It's because God's glory increases with the diversity of his church with the expansion of his church, with the complexity of his church, with the multifaceted nature of his church. In other words, there's basically the point being made in this chapter, the more sinful people come into the church, the more God is glorified. So to go evangelize. And obviously, these Gentiles that, that God is saying are welcome into the covenant of God. Now, he's going to change them. But these Gentiles that he's saying are welcome into the covenant of God, they're vile, sinful people, right? They're, we can read, kind of mirror read in the New Testament and learn all sorts of things about these people, right? They're idol worshipers, they're not Sabbath keepers, they're people who ate food offered to idols, they're people who drank too much, they're people who slept around, they're evil people, they're vile people, they're people like we used to be, really. But if these are the people that, that, that God wants in his church and if these are the people that God gets glory from when they come into his church then these are the sorts of people that we should be evangelizing in other words who do we evangelize the answer to that question is anyone who do we preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to anyone the free offer of the gospel is for anyone. A kind of big picture, as we conclude, big picture, this, this passage is kind of helpful as we kind of go back to our Presbyterian model of discipleship. Right, what's the first question in the Shorter Catechism? What's the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Great answer. Okay, how do I glorify God? This passage answers that very clearly. The way that we glorify God is by preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to our neighbors, to our friends, to sinners like us. That's what the passage is teaching. But the reality, again, is that like, I can't save anyone. I can preach my heart out. I can preach till my vocal cords won't let me preach anymore and I can't save a soul, right? I can't grow the church. And so how do we, how do, we do what this passage is calling us to do faithfully, right? What, 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 what is it really that we're called to do? Well, I think a starting place when it comes to preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to the people in which God has given us a voice, a starting place is back to the first point. Is what, what's the condition of our hearts? Right? Are we really mesmerized? Are we, do we, is there any shock value to the gospel anymore after five or 10 or 15 years of being a Christian? And if the answer to that question is no, well, then you need to go meet with Jesus. You need to go fall back in love. You need to, you need to, to, to go back to your first love and, and revisit the truths of the gospel, right? Hearty gospel proclamation begins with our hearts. 
Right? Does Christ mean anything to us? But second, uh, another application. As I mentioned uh, earlier ago, some of us, uh, we're more bold than others. Some of us don't meet strangers. Uh, and, and so when it comes to a time for evangelism, you know, we're all in. Uh, it, it bothers us zero, but for probably more of the majority of the room, you know, we're, we're pretty terrified by the thought of evangelizing our neighbor, of telling someone about Jesus, not because we're ashamed of Jesus, but just because that's, we're introverted and that's our nature. So what's a starting place? One of the best starting places is to live a godly life, to be a kind person, to love your neighbor, and to invite them to worship. And some of us who are afraid and terrified to share the gospel ourselves to our neighbors, don't be ashamed of inviting them into this room where the gospel, where the unsearchable riches of Christ are proclaimed at least six times a month. Authoritatively, from God's word, proclaimed to the hearts of the hearers. Don't be afraid to invite someone to worship where they will hear the gospel and where God might convert them and draw them to himself. And thirdly, if God wants these kinds of people in his church, then we have to be willing to make room for them. You can read the New Testament, you can read Paul's epistles, you can read, uh, you can read the whole thing and realize that when the Gentiles came into the church, it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And when you have baby Christians who've been doing all those things that I talked about for the great majority of their lives, right, when they come into the church, things are gonna, they're gonna rock the boat. And what a wonderful thing Right, that the boat would be rocked by baby Christians learning what it means to love Jesus with all their heart. And so let us be diligent in making room for those who come in. God is called to himself by the preaching of Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that, uh, we thank you for this passage And we thank you, Father, for revealing these things to us by your spirit and for calling us to lives of faithfulness. And we thank you, Father, that you would use even us, very weak servants, the least of us, to bring yourself glory. So, Father, would you strengthen and enable us to do that with faithfulness, um, not for our own glory, but for yours. In Christ's name we pray, amen.